Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for finding the Toronto Today podcast. Appreciate you checking us out on October 26th, a Tuesday in Toronto. We start by talking about the vaccine mandates. You'll have to explain it to me. I don't get it. I'm talking about for health care, for long-term care and health care. I don't think there's a lot of different sides to this issue, but the Minister of Health in the province seems to disagree. We'll talk about that. Supply chain issues, they're a thing. You know this if you've ordered something for your house, and maybe you've been ordered it and it's on back order for months on end or weeks on end. I mention it, and the text lines light up with people saying, this is happening to me all over the place. So why is that? Why is that happening? Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun Plus, things we're not talking about where we get audio and an update from Dave Chappelle. A, his whereabouts, and B, how he's feeling about all the controversy that his Netflix special has created. It's all coming up next in the Toronto Today podcast. Let me start here. We have a lot to do today. I want to update you on the Edward Rogers, um, Rogers sisters, Masai Ujiri story, no less, all at the top of the hour next hour. So I would urge you not to miss that. Let me start here with the mandating of vaccines for healthcare workers. Sometimes you just look and you'll say about a situation, I have no idea what we were thinking in that particular moment, but what we were doing was wrong. This, this could be something from the 70s. I talked about drinking and driving, how that was just so commonplace in the 70s and 80s. You know it and I know it. You might be old enough to have done it. I'm not. But I knew by the time I got my license in early 1988 um, that it wasn't the right thing to do. And you'd be in massive trouble if you did it. And maybe I wouldn't have even been in massive trouble. But the perception of it being the case is way worse than the other way around. And of course, there'd be different levels of trouble for drinking and driving, getting stopped wouldn't be great. I would assume I'd lose my license for a large chunk of time. Heaven forbid I hit somebody and doubling, tripling down on that notion. Heaven forbid I injured somebody when I hit them. Even more problems like like jail time. Nobody wants to think about that when they're 16, 17, 18 years old. So you you just end up being smarter. In 2021, we think we're pretty smart about a lot of things. There's a lot of just being too clever for the room, period. We see it in our culture all the time. We see it on either side of the political spectrum. There's times when the right thinks they're on top of something and way too clever and they've got it all figured out. And there's certainly times when if you're left of center, you've got it all set and your way is right and I don't want to listen to you anymore and you're a bad person at your moral core if you disagree with them on you know one of eight things or one of ten things. The other seven, you might be in lockstep. But it's the one they're going to remember. We used to just shrug our shoulders. If you'd come across somebody, 10 topics got brought up, let's say, hot hot button topics, and you agreed on nine but didn't see eye to eye on the one, you'd be like, okay, well, you know, we have a lot more in common than we do different. We don't do that as much as we used to. We have to find a way to get back to that, turn that temperature down in that context. But when I see this story and when I think about the idea that the people closest to vulnerable people health-wise should not have to be vaccinated. We will look back on this. I don't think it's going to take five weeks, five months. It sure won't take a half decade. We won't be sitting here in 2026 going, you know what? I see both sides of that issue. 
that healthcare workers working in dangerous and vulnerable circumstances, I, I think it's okay if they're unvaccinated with a deadly virus that's highly transmissible that, yeah, most people, most people will recover from. Most people won't have a bad outcome. Most people won't end up going right back into the very place that, they're, that they may have received that virus in, a hospital. Nobody wants to see the irony. It would be a black, dark irony of healthcare workers being hospitalized for a virus they caught in the hospital. They're susceptible enough. I think I've always been conscious of that when I've been in hospitals, that they're susceptible enough to a number of things that you, me, and everybody else could bring in. I remember thinking that at the time when the swine flu was happening. I think I may have told you before in late 2009, I think I had the remnants of the swine flu. That's as violently ill for about a 48, 72 hour span as I've ever been in my life. I'm a pretty healthy guy. I never smoked. I really don't drink. Um, And I I sure don't uh, gossip when I drink. I think that's important. Whatever. Um, but I don't, and I, you know, I, I'm no pitcher uh, of health. Okay, I'm no, you know, Mr. Olympia, but I know that I think I do a lot of the right things to stay out of bad circumstances. But I've never been flattened by a virus like has happened in late '09, and I was unbelievably conscious going in to um, a hospital environment to a, first a walk-in clinic, then later in the three-day span, the emergency room thinking there's something very, very wrong with me. This can't just be that swine flu that everyone's talking about. I think I picked up the sickness in, uh, in weirdly enough, Green Bay, Wisconsin, where I've only been three times, but one of the three times um, coming back from a football game that I took my dad to, uh, I, I was sick. Like that night, the next day flying, it was all my dad could do in, in his late 60s to get me through the airport. Like he's dragging me around um, and and showing me where the exits are. I'm supposed to be doing that with him. He's navigating his way through a busy airport in Chicago where we connected to get me home. So I'm conscious of the fact that healthcare workers have a very understandably, um, you know, dangerous environment. And that sure escalated when COVID came around. Yesterday, the health minister of the province because this is strictly a provincial issue. There's nothing a federal government could do here. Christine Elliott told reporters that a decision on whether to require all healthcare workers be vaccinated would, quote, probably be coming before the end of the week. An hour later, a spokesperson for Elliott confirmed to CP24 a decision will not be coming this week. There's no further timeline. You can be readily sure that the opposition was ready, is ready, and will continue to accuse the Ford government of dragging their feet. And I don't know any other way to look at it. I don't know any other circumstance in which you could think otherwise. Would Christine Elliott like to mandate vaccines for healthcare workers personally? Well, we'll never know. We'll never know. Is there bidding being done Um, Is she doing someone else's bidding in this role as a cabinet minister? Maybe so. That's sometimes what cabinet ministers have to do. When the federal government introduces the cabinet ministers later on today, you will realize that that's the case. And if you stand up and speak too much, like maybe a, a Mark Garneau, you won't be in that cabinet position terribly long. The goal of the cabinet ministers and the responsibility of the cabinet ministers is to do the bidding of the government. But so much of what this government has done has not necessarily been about public safety. That's not a um, shot. That's simply stating what seems 
obvious and observable to everybody. They care about getting elected again. And I'm not saying that they shouldn't. And I'm not saying that's not what politics is about sometimes. You just saw it with the current federal liberals. So don't paint this like I'm, you know, going one way uh, and blasting one party for doing this at one level of government and defending it the other way around. It's a problem in politics in the 21st century. It is. Christine Elliott said this in Queens Park to justify the hemming, hawing, hesitating, even though we're going to a better place. And some of that has been about government restrictions. Let me say that. Some of the people that predicted doom and gloom with schools have been wrong. Doom and gloom with community spread have been wrong. We're going to see a Labor Day uptick. We're going to see a Thanksgiving uptick. They're about to tell you that we could see a Halloween uptick. We won't. We have it. We're in a great place. We know how to risk mitigate, and we're heavily, heavily vaccinated as communities. I would say there's another layer of that that I'll get to in a couple minutes that no one will talk about, and you know probably what it is. Here's Christine Elliott in Queens Park yesterday. We can appreciate that there are many different positions on this, which indicates this is not just a simple do it and everything will be fine. It's not that way. As the premier indicated, we have to listen to the experts in the field, the uh, people that run the hospitals, the people that are knowledgeable, the nurses groups, the doctors groups, everybody else to understand what the ramifications of a mandatory vaccination program would be. It's not good if somebody comes in and infects someone because they're not vaccinated. But on the other hand, If a whole group of people leaves, then there's nobody to take care of people in the hospital. Okay, there aren't many other sides to this, uh, Ms. Elliott. There's two. You do it or you don't. You don't make exceptions. Everybody has a vaccine or you do not force everyone to have a vaccine. But this is also health care. I can listen to that argument in a lot of other circumstances where you're not, quote unquote, on the front lines and you've got the potential to infect other people. The last thing someone going to the hospital needs to worry about is whether a healthcare worker is vaccinated. And it's all they did have to worry about for months, in essence, a year with this pandemic until the vaccines were available. For 10, 11 months, what was the stress that you felt and I felt? I better not have to go to the hospital. I hope I don't have to take my dad to the hospital. I hope I don't have to take a kid to the hospital. I hope I don't have to go. Joe Cressy was on the show yesterday, city councilor. He went to the hospital with panic attacks, concern about his own well-being. I'm sure that exacerbates the stress. It's really tough to go in and think, I got something wrong with me and I need someone to see me now. And then it's exacerbated with the idea that someone who sees me could be a 50-year-old nurse or doctor or uh, you know, uh, some, some form of medical assistant and, they've, and they're unvaccinated. And they're working in a highly high traffic environment in which the virus could be circulating. If you bring the virus into the hospital, it's at the hospital. Okay, there's just no doubt about that. New York State mandated vaccines for health workers two months ago. What's happening? Well, um, some people were put on unpaid leave. No one was fired. Some workers would rather risk their jobs rather than get vaccinated. That's up to them. But there aren't many sides to this issue there's only two and the argument that's being made here that nurses and doctors are leaving because they don't want to get vaccinated that that's not what's happening in the industry ma'am people are leaving the industry because they're fried like fried absolutely electrocuted fried when it comes to working conditions long hours stress angry patients 
um, demonstrations outside those particular workplaces that I don't have to deal with. And most people listening don't have to deal with. But what you're seeing in the United States is the mandates indeed are working. As of a week ago, Wednesday, 92% of hospital workers in New York were vaccinated. Without the state mandate, that wouldn't have happened. Does that create an environment, a highly vaccinated environment, where you're going to feel safer going to hospitals? Well, absolutely. A Georgetown University law professor, Lawrence Gostin, his quote here, frankly, I don't think a health worker who refuses a vaccine has a leg to stand on. He thinks they're urgent, ethical, and all importantly, legal. There's no evidence whatsoever. No one could document that they cause staff shortages. None of them do that. A vaccine is required for influenza, for chickenpox, for MMR, all those things. So this is politics, plain and simple right now. There's an anti-vax vote that the conservative party is afraid to lose. You know it and I know it. When in reality, anybody who can see the light at the end of the tunnel and the next election would probably be able to tell you that what they're giving up is the middle. The middle that still isn't sure they're ready to vote for Stephen Del Duca. That still isn't sure they're ready to vote for Andrea Horvath. But, you know, not putting your health first or that of your elderly parent or your kid by not mandating vaccines. That's telling you everything you need to know. Do they want to get elected or do they want to keep you safe in the most vulnerable environments? Healthcare workers are leaving because they're stressed and they are fried, not because they don't want to get vaccinated. In fact, I bet you if you I bet you every dollar I've got that the vast majority of people that have quit the healthcare industry are fully vaccinated, not non-vaccinated. On the labor front, two big things come down yesterday. One is the proposal for a ban on non-compete clauses for employees. That might affect you or someone you know. And the other is obviously that right to disconnect law. Let's chat it up with employment lawyer Fiona Martin. She's an associate at Samfiru to Markin. Our friends from there, uh, who of course host the Employment Law Show Monday and Wednesday nights right here uh, before On Point with Alex Pearson. Fiona, it's great to have you on. Thanks very much for making the time. Morning, Greg. Thanks for having me today. Happy to. Listen, we're uh, it's just the two of us talking. I'm trying to get out of a non-compete right now. Do you, actually, I'm just kidding. I just got here. But um, <laughs> this is something where um, I, I wonder if there will be a level that people say there will be. There's not a lot of empathy, perhaps, with, say, it was a high-profile television job or a big executive job where big salaries are involved. I guess the, I understand the idea of a non-compete clause. For lower-paying jobs, um, they're not great. Um, I know they're hard to enforce, so they say. Is that true? Yeah, it's it's certainly true. So although this um, proposed legislation, the Working for Workers Act, um, it, it, it sends a good message, but the reality is that even prior to this, government um, announcement, despite their widespread use in a lot of employment contracts, non-competes were rarely found enforceable by the court. Um, so it is difficult to uphold um, a non-compete clause in the eyes of, of a judge, but in any event, um, this proposed ban would send a good message to the general public that doesn't necessarily always know, and the general, mm. like a regular employer or employee, might not always know that a non-compete is likely to be enforce- unenforceable. And so when they see that in their contract, um, in the event that they're terminated, or even if they try to find um, another job while they're working with an employer, it may deter them from doing so if they're led to believe that this 
this uh, clause is enforceable. The, the concept, Fiona, from Monty McNaughton, uh, as he laid it out yesterday, is, is the idea, and he's, he's done some really innovative stuff that I've been impressed with the last couple of weeks, but the idea is is that it would make Ontario more attractive to workers. But if you if you came from, you know, Illinois or, or Michigan and you signed a non-compete in that state, it's up to that state to enforce it. You can say, well, you know, we don't recognize non-compete clauses, but you've still got to get disentangled from your previous employer. And, and it would matter then where that job was, wouldn't it? Yeah, it, it would matter. Um where you're coming from but i guess in like the idea of this legislation i mean i, I think it's specific not specifically but i know he made comments about how it's supposed to be attractive to tech workers and like we've seen sort of similar legislation in california where non-competes are not enforceable um the idea is to make ontario more attractive to tech workers to, to answer your question yes mm-hmm. um it will ultimately depend on where the non-compete originated from but within the context of ontario yes it it certainly will have teeth in ontario but to your point maybe less teeth if you're coming from from like let's say the us but just using general non-compete principles Mm. it's very it's it's difficult to have a non-compete enforceable right it's just it has to be reasonable within it within its temporal scope and its geographic scope. So I still, I, I would have a hard time. I think a judge would have a hard time mm. deciding that some, and a clause that saying you can't work in another tech industry that's several hundred kilometers away is an enforceable clause. Uh, but again, I guess we'll, we'll leave that to the, to the judges. I, I think most listeners could relate to it as it happens sometimes in in sports and sometimes as it happens in, in the media. Um, and yeah, it does happen, um, you know, in the media business. For example, David Letterman wants to leave NBC to go to CBS and nobody wants an unhappy, disgruntled employee, although, to be honest, Letterman seemed that way for years. So he decides to sign a deal with CBS. There's nothing NBC can really do, but they say, well, but we got to find the right amount of time that you're off the air. That often happens in the business where you just don't want to see somebody show up, you know, be on one station one day or one network one day. And then all of a sudden they're on the other network. That, that looks that looks like they didn't cover their bases in, in terms of being competitive. And, and that was the case that that certainly is the case with, you know, network news anchors and TV talk show hosts. Yeah, I think that you, you raise a good point. I think the reality is sometimes companies don't always like, yes, there's a lot of we look at employment contracts on a daily basis. There's always non-compete clauses, whether a company actually will choose to legally pursue a client, a former employee that breaches the non-compete is a whole other issue. Um, I think you, you have to establish that the company incurred some level of damages. So the reality of these employers actually pursuing those who breach the non-compete mm. again it's it's not common fiona martin's our guest associate at sanfiro to Markin uh llp let me ask you one on this right to disconnect law what was your reaction to to hearing about it's long been rumored and, and companies do have their own policy but some some jobs um in the medical field I, i'd even say this one um they're not necessarily practical to, to I wouldn't say ever to turn your phone off, but but things break and everybody's got a 24 hour news cycle on their phone that may affect their workplace. Um, how do you view this? Are people really going to challenge the idea that, well, my boss emailed me at the wrong time? I want to I want to do something about it. Yeah, you, you, you raise a, a good point in the sense that, yes, this 
legis- proposed legislation certainly sends a positive message in terms of avoiding employee burnout. But the reality is, in terms of enforceability, it's going to have to come from the top. It's going to have to come from VPs, CEOs who decide to implement a culture change and, mm-hmm. I guess, refrain from rewarding those or, I guess, take a second I can guess at whether or not they need to reward those who are working longer hours, who are working overtime. I, I do agree that it's practically speaking, it's, it may not always be possible, but I, I certainly think it's a, a step in the right direction to have a written policy in writing. Like this proposed legislation um, is suggesting that the policies require are required to set out clear expectations regarding email response times, out-of-office notifications, to help employees manage their personal, like the work life and, and personal balance. So mm-hmm. it, you're uh, right. Like it's not, it, it, life isn't suddenly going to change. And I do understand it's going to be harder in certain industries to implement them, but it sends a good message, right? Especially if employers are now forced to have, or, well, assuming if this legislation is passed, um, yeah. have something in writing that employees can rely on and say, hey, listen, yeah. we have this workplace policy that you're not complying yeah. with. It gives a lot more teeth. Yeah, uh, jobs are different, employees are different, uh, but but it sets a standard anyway uh, and a benchmark people can follow. Fiona, thanks very much for the time. I hope we get to chat again soon. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Greg. That's uh, Fiona Martin, employment lawyer, associate at Sam Fiora to Market. Noon. I just mentioned the uh, supply chain issues, and I got a couple text messages from people. Uh, one guy owns a shoe store in Niagara, like running shoes specifically. Not your fancy you know, going out to a, you know, five-star restaurant, like, I don't know, Pickle Barrel. <laughs> I love Pickle Barrel, so I want to give them five stars. But he writes, uh, they're waiting for uh, the ASIC shoe, and they're waiting for 160 pairs. We have a run store in Niagara. Hi, Greg. We have a run store in Niagara. Paid for and still waiting for $12,000 worth of ASIC shoes for us to retail. Been told industry expects three to four months to lay on all goods for November to April. That's from Benny. They're coming from Vietnam, 160 pairs. Long list of customers waiting for the call when they arrive. And we know for the entire retail environment, it's harder as it is. Like, why am I going into your store as opposed to just ordering it online? Because I want to try them on. There's still things you have to do that with. Guy writes, uh, he's waiting, shopping around for new garage doors. He was told between 11 and 17 weeks. So this is a problem. Everyone's experiencing it. And we're not even close to the Christmas shopping season yet. Erica Alini is the money and consumer reporter at Global News. Uh, she's just started a series on the supply chain, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Erica, it's great to have you on the show. Thanks very much for making the time. Thanks very much for having me. Well, you documented this. It's on the story on it's on, on your Twitter account, but it's also on globalnews.ca with um, really well drawn, better than I could do. Um, drawn like I see shipping containers and stores and uh, boats and there's five different arrows involved. So this is not this is not an easy process to explain why people's garage doors and running shoes are late, is it? <laughs> no, it's not. I have to. Uh... <laughs> It started out with a doodle of mine, and then the great <laughs> graphics team at Global made it made it look pretty. <laughs> I'm a big fan of the three small boats underneath the one big boat. I realize they're probably the same size boat; they're just further away. But that's another story. Correct. <laughs> yeah. So, so this isn't like I said. This isn't changing anytime soon, and it's something that's affecting. You know, when we say something is a chain, clearly it's everybody. It's consumers. It's retailers, and it just becomes this vicious circle where everybody's frustrated. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And when I asked uh, sort of supply chain managers when they see this ending, the answer was kind of who knows, but probably uh, not until midway through 2022. So is one of the reasons that we've all just gotten back to doing things and demanding things quicker than some people thought we would like once we're emerging out of out of the middle part of the pandemic let's say we all get fully vaccinated and we want to go more places do more things is that part of it or was it more well we're staying at home ad nauseum and people just thought instead of you know spending the money on that trip or doing this or um a golf membership i'm i'm going to order stuff for my house and then like i said hot tubs garage doors patio furniture you can't find it for months on end so this actually, it's the latter. It's uh, when we all got stuck at home, um, I, I would say a few months. So this, there's been a, a huge surge in demand for goods. So we're buying more stuff, basically, instead of, like you were saying, um, putting more of our dollars into services like restaurants, concerts, movie theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, when the pandemic started, we all were a little bit concerned about uh, probably our, our finances and our future. But by the summer of 2020, we started feeling like, you know, a lot of people kept their jobs. We were doing fine, but there was nowhere to go. So we started just ordering more stuff, more, you know, the standing bike for the improvised home gym, uh, more electronics, patio furniture, what have you. So this started in the summer of 2020, and it's been building up since. I've been reporting on the supply chain issue since the beginning of this year, and I honestly thought it would ease up because I was thinking, okay, so the... COVID-19 restrictions are loosening up. You can go out to restaurants now. You can travel a little bit, at least domestically, without too much hassle. Um, But it hasn't let up. So there was this surge in demand for goods that started in the summer of 2020. It's still going on. And now we're Mm. feeling it even more because it's it's just building and building Mm. and building. And supply chains are pretty nimble. They can handle the occasional upswing certainly for the holidays is always an increase they can handle that but not just like sustained surge that has been going on for over a year erica lini's our guest on toronto today on global news radio 640 toronto um and she uh, has a piece at globalnews.ca that's fascinating but also easily understandable you mentioned as well in the piece that um the supply containers the things you see on these on these giant ships there's not enough of them, which seems, you know, patently obvious to me that the, the manufacturers of these should be, you know, dining out and making as many as they can, knowing the demand is there. Is there? It's not that simple. No, yeah, uh, the short that there is a shortage, like an actual shortage of containers, is something that I've started to hear more recently. But earlier on, uh, we what we were hearing about containers, there was another type of issue. And that was that uh, a bunch of containers were stuck at the wrong end of the supply chain. Um, so you had um, Asia, particularly China, uh, you know, their economy, they, they sort of uh, started humming along again a little faster, a little sooner um, than North America, where we're still dealing with the third wave when, when China started, um, you know, to produce manufacturing activity ramped up and uh, they needed these containers to send stuff um, to to North America and to Europe, but particularly in North America, as far as I know, uh, you had all these containers that were lying empty and were taking longer to be shipped back overseas because ports were dealing with COVID protocols and labor shortages. 
So it's a pretty complicated problem with containers. Oh my goodness. Um, the, the obvious question anybody would be asking, maybe they're yelling it at the radio for me to ask it to you right now. When do you think it gets better? Is there any sign, even if we looked ahead to spring 2022, we all hope we're in a much better place with the pandemic. Will we be in a much better place with the supply chain issues? So uh, time-wise, what I heard is maybe some, you know, midway through 2022, this will be resolved. In terms of how it gets resolved, uh, you know, probably some of us, some consumers will at one point give up uh, on ordering. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds depressing on a Tuesday, on a raining Tuesday, that they're just going to give up. (laughs) Honestly, if it's going to take a month or, you know, two months to get here, you know, maybe I can do without it. Companies are trying, are figuring out workarounds. Uh, so right now they're kind of managing. So you're hearing about companies like IKEA and Walmart chartering their own vessels to try to work around the mm. supply chain log jams. Um, eventually, you know, I think companies will probably come up with more more permanent solutions. Um, that's something that we plan to explore later on in the series. Whether that means sort of relying a little less on this uh, just in time. Uh, inventory model, supply chain model, uh, whether that means uh, making sure that you have more suppliers in your own home country. Mm. Um, We'll see. We're waiting on furniture at the Brady household. And let me just say, I'm not one of those husbands that could uh, make my own furniture. I know there's people that exist out there that can do that stuff. This is not an option. So it's got to be retail purchased. And it's a problem that it's, uh, it's like a few weeks late. I'll tell you that. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I wish I was handy. I'm not. <laughs> uh, thanks very much. It's a, it's a fascinating story. And, and uh, if we can keep having you on to follow up on where it goes, especially closer to Christmas, that'd be great for us. Thanks for the time today. Thanks. So I don't know if you saw this. We haven't had a big Ontario protest for a while um, in terms of, well, there's, there's going to be a demonstration outside hospitals or outside schools. We've been pretty good about that stuff. Like, we got we to gotta honestly look and go, we aren't the United States of America. I love traveling to the States. I lived there 10 years. One of my kids was born there, blah, blah, blah. But we're not the U.S. I see this sign. There was a huge protest uh, where they kind of closed down the Brooklyn Bridge yesterday, which is no, no small feat to shut traffic on the Brooklyn Bridge. But what I took away from it, I was looking at it last night um, as I'm watching the football game, and there's five different signs. All are five different things, really. There's a sign that basically is like, question science. Well, okay, you know, you're a loon. But there's another sign that says, healthcare workers against mandates. I'm not listening to that terribly. Um, Business owners say no to mandates. Now that... I can listen to an argument about that. What's your business? What's the foot traffic like? What's the vaccination rate of the employees? Not all businesses are created equal. And then there's another guy with a sign that just says unmask our kids. And I'm like, okay, we've run the gamut from where the first sign I see. And all these people are showing up to the same thing. They all have different um, MOs, if you will, showing up at this particular protest. But that's... (laughs) That's America in a nutshell right now. And there's people that might agree with all five of those things. I don't know. Anthony Fury joins me uh, from the Toronto Sun. Uh, that's that's really something, right? You've got the <laughs> don't believe science and unmask our kids are two totally different arguments, I feel like, at the end of the day. About this story before, back, uh, back when Don Cherry was let go, 
uh, I was in the post media HQ just around the corner from Rogers, uh, the Rogers HQ. And I was told that there's protests outside Rogers about this. So I said, all right, I got to check this out. And you expect there's going to be people, you know, holding up Don Cherry signs and so forth. I get there. There's about 20 people there. And yeah, a few of them were holding up Don Cherry signs. A couple of them were holding up Epstein didn't kill himself signs. And I thought, wow. That, if you want to talk about tangent, <laughs> if you want to talk about going in a different direction, yeah. not in a, a mixed bag of grievances, look, you sometimes get these more, more broad-based protests where there's a, a lot of folks there, and they're generally on message, and then sometimes you get other protests where it, it really is just a a group of disparate grievances who have happened to gather together. It's amazing. I, I hadn't thought about it, how that all of that has died down and we thought we needed, and I would have said it at the time too, we need legislation. We've got to protect hospitals. Ambulances can't park anywhere. And they put legislation through Premier Legault did that in Quebec. I haven't, I mean, I think we are well in agreement that the media would be covering these things if they were happening. They clearly aren't. Well, you know what? There was a protest yesterday. I, I got the notification about a group called, I think, Concerned Students of Ontario that were protesting at the McMaster Student Centre against the mandatory vaccine policies. Uh, look, I don't mm. think you should be protesting in front of hospitals, certainly not in a way that sort of blocks the entrance. Uh, I think when we had that going on and there's a lot of media coverage over it, I think a little bit of it was oversold. I mean, I don't think people were there intentionally to deny cancer patients access to the facility. And I'm not sure if we ever actually got to the point where there were so many people that they were they were clogging the entryway. I mean, remember, we got the American consulate on University Avenue. Sometimes thousands of people go there to protest their various uh grievances on foreign affairs, and we still get people into all those hospitals on University Avenue Row. So, you know, these things can be managed. Friday's announcement. Um, let's double back there because I, I didn't get your uh, your reaction, obviously. Um, you know, a, a lot of progress. So many good things have been right. utilized here. You and I have talked about Delta. Uh, it, it is, you know, we are a highly vaccinated community and we sure know how to risk mitigate. And some of the restrictions have helped us crush the numbers down. But how did you react to two things? One in mid-January, the idea that, that we'd eliminate the requirement to be vaccinated, and then later on in March, the potential for an indoor mask mandate to disappear. We can debate the particular timing, too soon, too late, et cetera. I think the bottom line is it's good that they have actually set these goals. They have acknowledged that the learn to live with COVID approach is actually going to embrace, be embraced soon. I don't know whether they're going to push it back. Maybe they're actually going to move all these dates forward. But it's so important to acknowledge all of this. I mean, back when we brought in the vaccine passport and Doug Ford, he was initially opposed fervently. So is Kieran Moore. Doug Ford said, I don't want to create a split society. The fact we're talking about uh, all these protests against the mandates suggests, well, maybe we did create a split society. And I said, you've got to have a sunset clause on all of this. When you do something uh, this extreme, you've got to talk about end dates. There's got to be repeated adversarial review. These were terms we used a lot back during the war on terror when there were very uh, extreme legislation brought in to combat uh, uh, terrorism, both uh, at home and abroad. So it's good to see this date put there of January. And uh, it's definitely going to pivot the conversation, I I hope, in a productive way, because, you know, we've spoken before about the way the mask rules are in place in effective reasons and the way they're in place more as theater. So we're, we're, we're moving forward. We're progressing. I'm disappointed. Um, Christine Elliott mentioned yesterday, the health minister, that there are many sides to the debate as to whether to vaccinate healthcare workers. I don't see many sides. I suppose the argument could be made. There's two. And um, there's a lot of people looking at people leaving the healthcare industry. But I think they're leaving because they're either close to retirement. They're they're wanting to work in a far less stressful, far less hot environment, if you will, 
uh, not hot temperature wise, but just controversial. And that's why they're leaving. I, I don't see a large number of healthcare workers saying my body, my choice. I'm out of here. That's that's almost the last industry you'd see that in. Am I wrong? Yeah, so there's 180 people at University Health Network who have not, for whatever reason, gotten vaccinated by their termination date. I broke the news about how Ontario Superior Court uh, issued an interim injunction. Mm-hmm. They like, can't fire those people just yet. Only 25 of them were involved in the legal action. The others, I don't know. And what was their particular concern? What was their particular grievance? Uh, I'm told there's religious reasons for some people, health reasons for others. I'm not here to unpack them in detail. I'm not here to speak for them or defend them. But I think Christine Elliott's right. You're right. I mean, I think we got a, a whole range of perspectives on all of this. And, and it shouldn't really surprise us. I, I know there's a new report out from the Toronto Star looking at uh, school board employees who have submitted vaccine exemptions at a far greater rate than was expected. Now, I think when you submit an exemption, you're doing it one step further than just not getting around to getting vaccinated yet. So all that tells me is that there are some people who who are not just kind of lazy or negligent, but these people are serious about saying they don't want to get it. They're committed. They're, they're, they're going through the paperwork. They're going through the legal steps. You know, they're really, really serious. I'm not for, I mean, the mandates I, I accept begrudgingly and only for a period of time, but I'm right. not for firing people. I, I, I don't know why they cannot be placed on some form of unpaid leave. And especially given that we're, we're looking at a scenario where we're wiping out the, the very existence of the mandates um, months from now. I don't think that helps get to uh, to 90%. But I had Joe Cressy on the show yesterday, and I said to Joe, I go, unless kids really, unless the 5 to 11s really take to the vaccines, and I'm not sure they will. And I, I, I'd like to think they would. If I had a six-year-old, I would vaccinate him. Yes, I would. But I, I find it's a harder argument to make than to be insistent and, and force it like I want to force it on somebody in long term care. And I want to force it on teachers and I want to force it on healthcare workers, a random, healthy seven year old. I have a tougher time telling a parent you have to do this. Yeah, well, the raw numbers tell us that kids are least at risk of COVID and they are most at risk of having the severe outcomes from the virus, however low those numbers may be. So things certainly skew in a direction where. Well, let's just say when we talked about those Angus Reid polls earlier uh, showing that only 50 percent of parents are saying, yeah, I'm going to get the kid vaccinated as soon as it's available. A number of others wanted to wait and so forth. Well, I guess you can appreciate why they're coming around to that perspective. Yeah, um, you mentioned some of the, the theatrical stuff. Um, I, I I don't get it. I, w- I walk into the, the the gym. I'm wearing a mask to walk six feet from machine to machine. I got eight, I got eight dudes playing basketball, full contact, four on four basketball, twenty feet away from me uh, to get up to use the bathroom in a restaurant. Like these are the kind of things. I hope everybody is aware of the theatrical nature of these. You're seeing it, and uh, I know as a as a hockey parent right now in 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 the local rinks. Yeah, you know, some of those things, particularly remasking just to move from one gym station to the other, (laughs) it's kind of demoralizing to do it. And it's also hard to even remember to do it because it just goes so against, you know, what is natural to do. So I don't want to out myself as a criminal here on air, but I got (laughs) to confess, there's a few times when I've been jumping from this station at the gym to, you know, another one at the Good Life just a few feet away. And oops, I'm sorry, I forgot to put the mask on. When it comes to the hockey arena stuff, this has been surprisingly or perhaps not surprisingly, one of the most contentious issues in Ontario, the Greater Toronto Hockey League, they implemented their own voluntary vaccine mandate, vaccine passport system. They didn't need to based on provincial rules. They went ahead and did it. I heard from a lot of parents who were very upset, some who were not vaccinated, others who were, who were, who were frustrated with it. I can tell you in our household, I mean, we've, we've got the vaccine paperwork, we've done it, uh, but it's, 
kind of annoying to do it day after day, every time you show up. And then you see the rules that are happening uh, there at the arena where you go in and, and spectators aren't really allowed typically in most of the mm-hmm. arenas right now. So you got whatever you have, 20, 30 kids on the ice. So you've only got 30 parents in a giant arena. You're sitting so far away from someone else and you got to wear the mask. But then the buzzer rings, you go back into the change room and you're all sort of shoulder to shoulder taking off the skates for the kids. And that's okay. I'm cool with that. But I can't take off the mask when I'm nowhere near another person, you know, at the, at the other side of the arena. And meanwhile, if you turn on the television and you watch some NHL games, Greg, I think I spied a couple people not wearing masks in the stadium, if I'm not mistaken. Amazing. Yeah. And, I, and again, this, this isn't this isn't this isn't coming to an end next week or the week after that. It, no. it, it's going to take a lot of pushback and no one's saying, well, let's have mass non-compliance or let's bring all these ridiculous signs to, uh, to amateur hockey games and scare our kids. Of course not. But, um, you know, it, it takes loud voices to get things like this changed. No, absolutely. And it is frustrating because I think a lot of people uh, want to say this thing's a little bit too much for me, but they don't want to be ostracized as the person walking around with the, you know, there's 5G and the vaccine signs that you're talking about. I don't think there's a connection between the two. I think if a parent wants to say, excuse me a second, but this rule, you know, it's not working out for me or excuse me, but, you know, you, you're telling my kid that they're not allowed to talk during lunchtime in school. And that's a rule. A lot of people were surprised to find this out after, you know, news stories on all of this. It's true. The kids, uh, they eat their lunch and the teacher either reads them a story or they put on a Pokemon episode or what have you. And they say, no talking. And yet, hold on a second. You and I go out for quote unquote lunch. And we know most of the time we're not eating. Most of the time we're just gabbing and having a sip of beer every few minutes as we're, you know, telling our story and so forth. Oh, and look, there's a buddy we haven't seen for two years. Come on and sit down with us at the table and that kind of stuff. It's all good. We can pal around indoors, have a few laughs Hmm. for a couple hours. The kids can't talk for 10 minutes in the classroom. What's going on? It's good practice for Halloween where they have to whisper uh, trick or treat (laughs) at the uh, (laughs) 20 feet from the doorstep. We did the trick or treating last year. It was it was recommended against or what have you. There are no formal rules about it. It was like a scene from High Noon. I think one of my kids was in a cowboy outfit because nobody went out and we were just walking down a deserted street and there were wow. weeds uh, blowing by and so forth. This year, a lot more folks are going to be out doing it. But I did see a poll that says only 50% of people are going to be uh, giving out candy. Although I wonder if it's just an excuse for people to be cheap this year. I think so. Yeah, yeah. By the way, uh, Anthony Fury arrested for breaking Halloween protocol makes all the papers. Then you can be in more papers than just one. I don't know. Like, you know, like, like broaden the horizons. That's the next dirty Harry. C- civil disobedience. Yeah, it seems to be as well, especially rejecting candy corn, being a jer- throwing candy corn back at people's households. I know that's more uh, an American thing. We- Sheba Siddiqui, uh, producer extraordinaire, joining us. Uh, and uh, I mentioned Dave Chappelle is just dominating the news cycle. It never seems to go away. I didn't know he's coming to uh, Toronto as well. Like, um, are you? I know you're trying I, to get I Martha. Didn't know he's co- When's he coming to Toronto? Uh, November 15th. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, look into that. Are it, you, what do you think? Would you go? He, he's, it's a weird one. Um, I won't, but he's screening a documentary November 15th at, uh, okay. at Scotiabank Arena. I'd go see. I still want Eddie, Eddie Murphy before the pandemic was planning a big stand-up tour. He was going to go back to stand-up. And again, is Eddie Murphy evolved and more mature? And yes, um, but we, haven't, we didn't cancel him for everything he said in some terrible stuff from the raw and delirious things, right? For in the mid eighties, but Dave Chappelle's saying it now. I guess that's different, right? Well, here's the thing. So I, I don't know how close you've been keeping up with this, but last Wednesday there was a walkout at Netflix headquarters because of his of the closer, his last mm. uh 
comedic special for Netflix. And he had a lot to say about this. So he has spoken out about this in a new stand-up video. Let's hear what he had to say right here. That is not true. If they had invited me, I would have accepted it, although I am confused about what we are speaking about. I said what I said, and boy, I heard what you said. My God, how could I not? You said you want a safe working environment at Netflix. Well, it seems like I'm the only one that can't go to the office anymore. I want everyone in this audience to know that it, even though the media frames us that it's me versus that community, that it's not what it is. Do not blame the LBGTQ community for any of this sh This has nothing to do with them. It's about corporate interests and what I can say and what I cannot say. What do you make of that? He refuses to be censored. And he doesn't care about cancel culture. He doesn't care what anybody's saying. He's doubling down. He's standing. He, he said it right there. I said what I said. And I think that there are so many ways. This is, look, comedians are art. So there is a different way to interpret everything that is said. Um, and he's, he's standing by it. It's very controversial. He doesn't care. And actually, he's being canceled for his uh, his documentary. Many cities, many people that were going to air it have all pulled back. But he's, he says openly, the only person that's standing by him is Netflix. I wonder what Toronto... Okay, so he's scheduled to be in Toronto, Scotiabank Arena, November 15th, screen the documentary, and then he talks about it. But you're right. Here's what... So Andrew Yang was on, uh, the former presidential candidate, was on Bill Maher's show. And I played John McWhorter's clip yesterday. Andrew Yang said on Friday... Being a comedian seems like a really, really tough job. A comedian's primary role is to entertain and sometimes to make us think. But no one thinks it's a comedian's role to tell us how to think or what to think. And I think that's a huge distinction there to say there's some music lyrics that offend me. There's music videos that offend me. There's movies that offend me. But I don't think that's how that person wants me to think and, and, and want to live. If it's not entertaining to me, I turn it off. I don't pay the money. I walk away. And we struggle with that now. We struggle with the walk away right now. Yeah, we do. We do. I don't think we can. I think that we've evolved so much that it's just cancel, 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 cancel. And I think that we need to move past it. And look what he's saying in that clip. He's saying it's the corporations. It's so yeah. he's, ta he's talking about the consumerism, the consumerism behind it and who's actually really trying to cancel him. It's an interesting point. The Netflix defense is, is that the special doesn't push hatred or or threats of physical violence against anyone. And I would agree with that. The one that feels in the most physical harm right now is Dave Chappelle. It's just, it's true. I, I, I agree with him. I, I you know, I think he'd be more worried about getting attacked. He's not doing the attacking. You think Dave Chappelle wants to physically get in a confrontation with somebody over this? No, absolutely not. But I do feel that there are many communities that felt that his the closer was transphobic and homophobic. I and thought was it was too. Yes. So, I mean, he did say a lot in terms of that. And he's this is the reaction to it. Mm. It is a reaction to it. Thanks very much for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. Back with a live show tomorrow on Wednesday, October the 27th. Thank you for subscribing and feel free to share with your friends or leave us a rating and a description. Tell us what we're doing well. Tell us what you want to hear more of.